If you're renovating student housing, you renovate one kitchen and you might increase the rent on three or four beds. So, you know, more bang for your buck. Um, but no, in all seriousness, it is difficult to do mass renovations on a student housing property, at least in my experience, just because your window is so small, it might take multiple years to get it done. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Will Matheson. Will is an experienced real estate investor. Today, we're digging into his experience with multifamily versus student housing investing, comparing and contrasting the two, the differences between owning and operating student housing, what you need to know, what to focus on if you're going to get into student housing, his experiences between the two. He does invest in both longer-term multifamily and student housing deals. So a lot of great knowledge on that, the state of the market in student housing, what to look for in individual markets, the schools, the properties, everything around that. And we also dig into his experience as a young man starting as a real estate investor. He and his twin brother started when they were 23. They closed their first deal when they were 25. They're now in their early 30s and have done a lot of business in both multifamily and student housing. We dig into what it's like, the limiting beliefs that one has when one is young, how to deal with vendors and brokers and others in the industry when you're a young person, building your experience, building your book of business, building your your reputation, everything around that. It's tough to start when you're young. Generally, it's tough to start as a real estate investor in general, but when you're young, you have different obstacles than if you're an older, more experienced investor with more business, business experience outside of real estate. So a lot of great knowledge in this one, especially for younger real estate investors. You might have some limiting beliefs around getting started in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investments. To date, I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate deals. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're looking to help us out, take a quick minute, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, five stars if you don't mind. That really does help the show out quite a bit. That helps other people learn about the show, and that gives me some very valuable feedback. I love seeing that the content is valuable for you, and it's helping you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Once again, our guest today is Will Matheson. Let's go. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do in the real estate space and what it was like getting started at a relatively young age? So we actively look at both. So, I mean, really, it just depends on where the numbers work. The biggest difference, I think, between the two is really it comes down to... I mean, management is always important, but I understand a lot of companies that want to get into owner managing their own apartments. You know, I understand hiring third party. I understand doing it in-house. I would not look at doing, stu- doing student housing in-house. It is so m- vendor dependent in terms of getting your turns done on time. It is so dependent on getting that one lease cycle that, you know, the beginning of August, you've got to nail that. You've got to knock it out of the park. There's so much downside risk to taking on owner management and potentially screwing up, not having the connections with the vendors in the market to do the turns because everything's got to happen fast. Yeah, everything's got to happen so fast. So I think the biggest difference is management and mostly that 
student management is it's it's a completely different ball game. Awesome. I love it. I first I'd like to start with getting into multifamily versus student housing. Student housing, I feel, was very popular in the mid 20 teens, early 20 teens. There was a lot of talk about it, but I haven't haven't heard so much about it in recent years. So tell us about investing in student housing versus multifamily and why you'd go one direction versus the other. So by and large, you're still going to see everything getting rented out. If it's purpose-built student housing, it's still going to be rented out by the bed. What you have seen in these markets that get flooded with supply is things just being transitioned out of student housing into conventional multifamily, which is, you know, location matters for all real estate. But I feel like student housing it does get a little more sensitive because, you know, when you're leasing 500 bucks a bed, 600 bucks a bed on a four bedroom unit, if you have to fall back down to market rents for a four bedroom, you could be looking at a significantly lower economic or a a significantly lower rent. So when you're dealing with student housing, your proximity to the college itself becomes a lot more important. You're not just competing with other apartments, but anything that can be built closer to you. I, I use the University of South Carolina as an example. There was some student housing, I want to say, built in the late 2010 or late or 2000s, maybe 2010, 2012. New supply flooded the market closer to campus. It had to get converted, and that's your worst nightmare in a lot of cases. But I actually do want to, I want to push back on something. In a lot of ways, I don't think student housing, you know, everyone thinks like stereotypical fraternities, sororities, like parties getting out of control. But in a lot of cases, you can get, you know, it, it's... Maybe you have some boisterous activity, but it's not as rough as some stuff you'll see in C-class assets. It, it might be a little loud on the weekends, but it's not its not some of the worst problems you can run into. And oftentimes you can get the parents to guarantee the leases, co-sign on the leases, so it enhances your credit above what you'd get in maybe C-class and B-class apartments. That makes a lot of sense. And you know, from my experience as a college student many years ago, I can definitely understand that we were a little more difficult to deal with than long-term tenants. I think another thing that really got people, investors attracted to student housing back in the day was that students are paying per bed. They're generally willing to pay much higher prices per bed or per person than you might get from a typical long-term renter. Is that still the case or has the market kind of been flooded in with supply in in many markets, and is that does that still remain? What are you What are your thoughts? So I think that's that's going to be really school specific. It depends on when your leases were signed as well. You know, for some universities, you'll see their pre leasing be wrapped up. They're let's say for this year, twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four leasing cycle, they could have been wrapped up by November of twenty twenty two. So you already had the leases signed, agreements locked, even if you had cancellations at the university, you still had people bound to the leases. And one thing that I think people always, I think people always overstate, and I have no statistic to back this, so I'm going to be really clear about this, is a lot of people just, after they get that first taste, you know, their freshman year, they've lived on campus, they've no longer lived with their parents, even if they just had to get locked into a student housing property off campus, I think that, you know, if they had to pay for it anyway, I think they just wanted to go. I mean, admittedly, some of the assets we owned, we didn't miss a single rent payment during COVID. That's fair. That, that's a good point. And I may have personally a skewed view because I attended one of the, was ranked one of the top party schools in the, the country. So, you know, many may be different. But I think another thing that people wonder about is, you know, we had COVID happen. So, right, we're past that now. But it certainly, to some extent, impacted some college towns, at least for, you know, sometime, maybe a year or so. 
has that, you know, come back? Maybe the Carolinas weren't that impacted as compared to maybe colleges in, I don't know, California, New York or something like that. But has there been a big impact in the wake of, of COVID on student housing? Well, I mean, yeah. And there's also just, you know, what this is one of the problems I think that some higher ed runs into. But, you know, it's it's about more than just taking classes online. People go to the schools for the social life, which you don't get if you just stay at home. Otherwise, you know, everyone would still be taking online classes, staying at home, saving the money. They go for the social life. And even if the school is closed down, your friends are still <laughs> around. You know, only in the strictest places, only in the strictest states could you really bar any of the social interaction. But in the Carolinas and a lot of the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, most famously, you know, a lot of the places weren't shut down. And not just, I'm talking campuses, but retail life in general. So yeah, if you went, you could still see your friends. You could still see people. Interesting. Wow. So you saw students that just didn't want to return home to live with their parents and hey, they had a lease at the housing property anyway. So they weren't going to leave unless they absolutely had to, but they were going to go out of their way to stay in the property so that they didn't have to return home. Well, I mean, yeah, and there's also just, you know, what this is one of the problems I think that some higher ed runs into, but, you know, it's it's about more than just taking classes online. People go to the schools for the social life, which you don't get if you just stay at home. Otherwise, you know, everyone would still be taking online classes, staying at home, saving the money. They go for the social life, and even if the school is closed down, your friends are still around. You know, only in the strictest places, only in the strictest states could you really bar any of the social interaction. But in the Carolinas and a lot of the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, most famously, you know, a lot of the places weren't shut down. Uh, not just, I'm talking campuses, but retail life in general. So yeah, if you went, you could still see your friends, you could still see people. Okay. So as far as analyzing a, a student housing deal, what are a few things that you'll look at in terms of the market, I'd imagine you look probably pretty heavily at the university and their activity. What do you look for as far as you know due diligence, p selecting a market, looking at a property? As far as the due diligence goes, you have all of the normal things you're going to look for, you know, supply and demand, how much new supply is coming in, is the market growing, is, in, is the town growing, but is the university's enrollment growing? Some universities have had enrollment drop. That's never what you really, you don't want to see that. You don't necessarily want to see shrinking towns, but as I mentioned earlier, your proximity to campus really matters as well because someone could build right next to campus and you might be left out when the tide comes in, so to speak. So you're looking at the market in general, but you're also looking at the market specifically. And that gets into a lot of different things in terms of, you know, is it a small town or is it a big city? Because if you use, let's use NC State as an example in North Carolina. If you're not directly adjacent to campus building student housing, you're not only competing with student housing properties, you're building with you're competing with all of the new supply that comes into Raleigh, you know. So your bedroom prices are going to be held up against well what's a one bed apartment look like? What if I just got a roommate if it's not necessarily student housing? So it's a little more complicated. There's a little a few more factors you have to look into, but yeah, I I think in general there there's ways that it always or there's there's ways it works out. Mm, okay. So at the outset of our conversation, you had mentioned that with student housing, you basically need to hire a third party property management because of how intensive it is for your business in your multifamily investing. Do you hire third party property management? Do you keep that activity in house? How do you uh, handle those things differently, multifamily versus student housing? 
So with student housing, we always look to third parties for all the reasons I mentioned before. And just to kind of elaborate on that, if if I've got to turn 200 units in two weeks and I'm, you know, Price Company is a really big management group out of based in Raleigh. If Price has a 2000 beds in the market and they say, I need you to do this, every contractor wants to stay on their good side. If I, with my 100 units, 200 units, standalone property, only thing in the market, I feel like I'm not going to be their top priority. Yeah, I mean, like, this is like, oh, hey, I'm going to do your stuff, but price called. No, that's not a knock on price. That's an endorsement. I feel like they're going to take their work. As far as multifamily, when we started out, we did a lot of, we did a lot of third party. We've recently been growing out with a, a partner of ours, Stintino Management out of Charlotte, a guy named Fabio Nagara. We've partnered with him on about five deals, so we partner together, and he oversees the management and the operations. So it's it's somewhat of a vertical on that, not quite third party uh, in that okay. sense. So stepping even kind of further up the the chain of management, so we had property management, that, but then there's the asset management aspect of that where you're managing your property manager. How different or, or similar, honestly, do you find asset management of long-term multifamily versus student housing? Well, the nice thing I, about student housing is a lot of the time nothing <laughs> happens. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're in the leasing office, maybe it gets a little boisterous from time to time at the property level. But, you know, a lot of the times it's every two weeks, every month, oh, our pre-leasing number increased from 20, 30, 40, it's 100%. And I've still got four months before my next semester, whatever that may be. Like I said, some some lease in November when the move-ins are in August. And then it's just checking up our expenses in line, whereas multifamily, you've got fluctuations, people moving in, people moving out. Are my, are my market rents changing? Student, you set the rent and you lease it up. So I would imagine in student housing, when it comes time for that one big turn per year where you're turning hundreds of units all at once, that's a big a big dollar event, a big capital event. You have to have plenty of money in the bank to pay for that. How do you think about that in, in terms of budgeting for that expense and, and having enough in the bank to pay for that one big renovation or update or, or turn per year as compared to longer term multifamily that's a little more just cyclical, you know, turning over and turning units as they they come due? How do you think about that? I mean, you know, if if you've got a good idea of what your renewal rate is going to be six months out, you can kind of, it's easier to plan accordingly. If I know, you know, that half my tenants are leaving, I know I need to turn half of the units. As far as renovations, yeah, if you're talking about renovations, it's pretty difficult to get them all done in one cycle, you know, although I do joke also that if you're renovating student housing, you renovate one kitchen and you might increase the rent on three or four beds. So, you know, more bang for your buck. Um, but no, in all seriousness, it's it is difficult to do mass renovations on a student housing property, at least in my experience, just because your window is so small, it might take multiple years to get it done. Okay. So generally speaking, for someone starting out in the space, thinking back to uh, younger Will when you were first getting started, if, if somebody was trying to decide between longer term multifamily and student housing for their first deal, what direction would you potentially point them in? This isn't an investment recommendation. You're just saying, you know, an industry to focus on where there might generally be more opportunity, multifamily or student housing. What do you think? 
I would say you should go into multifamily for the same reason we started out in multifamily, which is in a lot of ways, I think it's harder to mess up. <laughs> you know, as long as you don't get too aggressive with your financing structures, which a lot of people did, you know, you, you can expect to do reasonably well. But there's also there's a lot of smaller multifamily properties speckling the country. You can find them on, you know, your MLS, LoopNet, stuff like that. The smaller student housing properties are often just, you know, it's a it's a house near campus, it's a duplex, and that's, you know, that's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, whereas a 15-person multifamily property, it's a little more steady, it's not as much pressure on that one leasing cycle. But then again, our third acquisition was a student housing property. We had great management, though. Nice, nice. Okay. So now I'd like to transition a bit to talking about Getting started in multifamily as a relatively young guy, you and your brother kind of got your feet in the water when you were 23, closed your first deal when you were 25. I think a lot of people are just frankly too intimidated to get started at that age. How did you overcome any limiting beliefs you might have had or did you have limiting beliefs that, you know, didn't didn't hold you back what what do you what do you think so we definitely had limiting beliefs and i think they turned out to be correct which was <laughs> we knew well i mean we had a very specific strategy when we started and that was we're going to buy small properties and we're going to go buy sell buy sell renovate really quick get in and get out and the reason for that was twofold or well there were plenty of reasons for that the first reason was the smaller the property the less money we have to raise I see people from time to time, they want to get into real estate and they're like, I'm, I'm going to go buy a $20 million property. And I'm like, well, the broker knows everyone else who owns a $20 million property. You don't own anything. So the only way you're getting this is if you massively overpay, whereas if you start small, the market's a little less efficient down there. The market's less efficient. Management could probably be improved. Capital infusions are more necessary because, I mean, admittedly, after, you know, as soon as you hit a 300-unit property built between 2000 and 2010, it's it's almost a commodity at that point, whereas, you know, some 1970s 10-unit deal is very specific. It might have not been renovated for 20 years. So we said start small because you can't raise the money. Go buy, sell really quickly because... You want to build the track record as quickly as you possibly can. You know, it's it's a lot more exciting to tell a new investor, hey, look, I I delivered a 40% return for my investors in a year as opposed to I made my quarterly distribution four times. It's it's a little more exciting. It jumps off the page a bit more. It builds your track record because you're, you're trying to grow. You know, you're not trying to own the first acquisition for 10 years. If you're buying a 10 unit property, you're trying to get in, get out, move up. So when you're in the, the real estate space, you're building relationships with a lot of other people. And when you're young, starting in your early 20s, I started in my mid-20s. And in that time, I got a lot of comments about, you know, oh, I wish I would have started when you were so, when I was your age and all that kind of a thing. But in a certain sense, it's a little bit of a put down because they're, they're you know, saying you're, you know, patting you on the head a little bit and saying you're not quite ready for this. How did you deal with building your, you know, reputation, your image, in the eyes of others in the industry, whether it was brokers, investors, property managers, service providers, you're really making yourself look serious and not just like, you know, young guys who are going to go away in a couple of months when they struggle a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I will be honest. I think we definitely got pushed around by some early property managers. That was that was one of the areas that was toughest. One thing I tell people is, you know, no one cares more about your deal than you. So you've got to, you got to be on top of these people. It doesn't matter how many years they've been in the industry. You've got to really be there. But 
you know, as to how to get brokers to take you seriously, the same message as earlier. If you start small, if you're doing acquisitions, you know, again, they're not going to sell you the $20 million deal. But, you know, when our first acquisitions in size were two units, six units, six units, 15, 24, 32, 32. And, you know, buying a 15 unit property in the Charleston area is what allowed me to buy a 32 unit property 13 months later and another 32 unit property six months after that. It compounds on itself. Whereas if you, you know, I've, I've seen people spend two years trying to buy their first deal because they're instantly like, hey, I got to buy the biggest thing possible. But you know, again, compounding on that same point, if you go out and try to start with 20 million, all the equity groups are going to say, what do you know? What are you doing? But you deliver them, hey, I've delivered returns on all these sub $10 million deals. They start to take you seriously. Makes sense. How about on the investor side of things and you're getting people to want to go into a deal with you. Did you bring them in on the, the first deal or did you have to do a few initially with your own capital and say, hey, look how we did on these. Join us on this first one where we're, you know, bringing in investors. How'd that go? So, I mean, you always you always want to practice, you know, raising money and you start with the friends and family. You always want to try to get something in there. But again, this this goes back to the timeline. If I tell someone, hey, let me invest your money for a year. You know, let's you know, you can you can date my investment service, so to speak, if you like it you know, great, you can sign up for the next one. If you don't, I'm selling the property in a year anyway. So if I don't do well, you don't do well, move on to the next one. So that's, you know, but we, we started out like so many other people, friends and family. And, you know, once we deliver for them once, like, hey, you know, you've got anyone else, if you got anyone else we should talk to, please let us know. We're trying to grow. We're trying to buy bigger. And, you know, you, quite frankly, you tell them, if, if you help me, you know, find some more investors, that means I can buy a bigger property, which is more diversification across the unit type. And quite frankly, if you do well for them, most cases, they're going to want to see you succeed. Nice. Okay. I like that. So before we move on to three questions, I ask every guest on the show, you mentioned that you kind of early on got pushed around by a few property managers, maybe as a result of, you know, agent and experience. And sometimes we you know, learns, learn lessons the hard way. Are there any other lessons that stick out to you that were, to put it that way, learned the hard way and maybe came as a result of being, you know, young guys just, just getting started back in the day? I mean, the toughest, I mean, one of the big lessons we learned early on is you really have to understand your pace of growth. We, you know, we went out there and we bought, I think, five four properties in about a 14 month period or so. And I, like I said, they were small. And after closing, you know, a 15 unit deal, we saw this 55 unit deal said, we got this, we can do this. Like, we'll we'll do this. And we did not do it. <laughs> okay, I remember going back to some people like saying, hey, look, can you can you help me out with this? I'm raising some money. And they were like, you still don't know. Like, come on, like, I, I need to see more track records. So we ended up terminating the contract, didn't close it hurt because we were trying to buy it for like 100 a unit and sold for like 150 a unit two years later. It would have been great. But, you know, that when people say, oh, if you've got a good deal, the money just comes. No, absolutely not. Worst advice people give. I have people call me, say, I want to do what you do. They say that exact same thing. I'm like, that, that's not how it works. They don't just give it to anybody. And I pre I'm glad you're nodding your head, too. <laughs> That is a thousand percent my experience. The idea of just get a deal and the money will follow is nonsense. It's not true. You have there's a lot of other pieces that have to fall into place, and it takes time to get that snowball rolling. But you have to keep pushing it to to get it going. And you know sometimes falling on your face or you know looking like a, a jerk or you know maybe not a jerk, looking inexperienced. But you know over the course of years, 
persistent effort can pay off and, and sounds like it has for you. So I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Will, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I think so. (laughs) Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I told you, I was going to say my marriage. I'm 31. I've been married six years and uh, it's just great. My wife is wonderful. I'm sure she's not going to listen, although I might ask her to listen (laughs) now that I've said this, but a great marriage foundation, truly wonderful. I've known my wife 10 years now. We met in college and uh, just makes life so much better and easier, stable, all that great stuff. She's wonderful. Hi, Abby. (laughs) Awesome. I hope she does listen. Hi, Abby. Thanks for tuning in and uh, quite the endorsement there. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? The worst investment we ever made was a property. I'll give you the specifics. There's a property called Greenwood Village in Charlotte, North Carolina, 24 units, December 2019 acquisition. And the day before closing, we had a very problematic tenant move into the property stopped paying, was causing some trouble. This is 2019 December when we closed, so you might see where this is going. We moved to evict on March 15th is our court appearance. So yes, you guessed it, COVID. COVID starts, courts close, a bunch of problems at the property. It took us until November of 2020. Despite working with the police to clean up this, we had a lot of problems. A lot of tenants left because it was 24 units, so you didn't have payroll on property, which makes it hard to monitor everything, became very tough. We're pumping money in to preserve investor capital. We did eventually sell the asset, returned all the investor capital, very small profit, but just worst investment that that COVID COVID made it difficult. It was a rough neighborhood to start with, but COVID really put us behind the eight ball. And the yield maintenance on the debt didn't help either. That's interesting because if you had if you had said at a high level a multifamily deal bought in Charlotte in December 2019, a lot of people, myself included, would initially say, "Oh man, I mean the market just blew up there. You must have done really really well." But as you dug deeper, there was much more to the story and and what happened as a result of economic conditions and and all that and all the issues of owning 24 units. Very interesting case study. Is there anything that you would maybe do differently? I just want to follow up on on that. What's the big lesson learned there? You know, so I'm an, I'm an open book on this one. If rough neighborhoods are very difficult if you don't have people on staff. So that was a mistake we made there. Another thing we did, every other loan we ever had had no prepayment penalties. That's one, you know, the best fine, you know, it looked best in the model if we held it for seven years. But we signed up for that yield maintenance. So the yield maintenance prepayment, I mean, we just for context, we bought for 3.3. I think we sold for 4 million, which looks good on paper, but 
There was a huge shield maintenance prepayment penalty. We were pumping equity into the property to keep it afloat. Evan and I were pumping our own money. We didn't, I think we only called like less than $100,000 from investors. We took most of it on ourselves to keep it going because it was our responsibility to the investors. And yeah, it was just, it was really difficult. But yes, on paper, if I only told you the purchase and sale prices, it sounds pretty good. But everything in the middle, very, very difficult. It was a tough deal, but you know we're transparent with vest- investors the whole time, and a lot of them understood. A lot of them would come back. So, well, that's that's good, and a lot of people. You're not alone in in learning yield maintenance uh, lesson the hard way. A lot of investors have been by that, and um, you know it, it's tough. Rates fall uh, in a, in a big way that can really increase your yield maintenance costs considerably. And just there's a whole the whole topic. But uh, anyway. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned? Oh, man. I mean, I do. I'm inclined to go back to the idea that just because you find a good deal does not mean the money will come to you. That one. I mean, we were just talking about that. It's, you know, it's it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet. You've got to cultivate those relationships. You've got to build out your partnerships. We work in the most capital intensive industry on the planet. I mean, maybe mining is more, I don't, I don't know. But we, we, it's an incredibly capital-intensive industry. You're going to need partners. You're going to need equity. You've got to build those relationships. It's not just, you know, the, it's not just the sales pitch. Anyone can do this. Good deal. Money follows good deal. It doesn't. You got to build it. Wow. Well, well I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge and all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you do or anything like that, so I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Will Matheson in Charleston, South Carolina. Our company website, mathcap.com. If you fill out the investor form on the investors tab, we'll reach out, schedule a call. We reach out to every investor who joins our mailing list. So happy to talk there. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying this show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I see your ratings and reviews, and I get to see that you're engaging with the content and escaping the Wall Street casino along with us always gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.